interesting, right? So we've been in a series on First John that was interrupted by discovering Revelation for a month. So you might have forgotten what we talked about before. Um, but I'll give you a short recap of First John chapters one and chapters two as we dive into First John. Well, the last part of First John two and then and then the uh, chapter three. You know that moment when you realize something's wrong? I mean, it's, it's just something's not quite right. There's, there's something off about your day. Um, maybe, maybe you are in the middle of a meeting. Maybe it's that meeting with your boss or a presentation that you're supposed to make at school or, uh, you know, something. And you realize that you've been so busy that morning preparing for, you know, whatever it was, the test, the the situation that you're going to be in, the important thing is you, you think you might have forgotten to brush your hair. And then you, you reach up and, and you feel your head and you're like, I did. I forgot to brush my hair. And, and you've had that feeling before, right? It might not be the hair thing, but something makes you feel like you shouldn't be in public. Like it's just not right for you to be in public. Maybe it's when you tried your hardest to get to the bathroom in time and you didn't quite make it. Have you ever done that? I mean, this doesn't just happen to children, by the way. I remember when I was working at Amazing Facts, and, uh, and and my boss stopped me in the hallway. I was like, you know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I'm guessing I'm not. You're working on something, and you're so diligent, like trying to get to the end of some project or whatever, that you know you got to go to the bathroom, but it's just not, you just can't take them the time right now. So when you finally get to the point where you, you have no other choice, you've got to go to the bathroom, you're racing there, and that's where I was. And, uh, and I, I'm in the hallway between my office and the bathroom, and my boss stops me. When your boss stops me, you're supposed to pay attention. But I, <laughs> I was not in the mood to pay attention. And, uh, well, I just about didn't make it in time. You know that, that moment where it's like, I feel embarrassed to be in public now because uh, maybe something happens that others can see. Or maybe you've expressed yourself in the best way you can, just trying to communicate that thing that's important to you. And people, this happens with kids maybe more often than adults, but, but they laugh at you. And you know that it's not just that they think that you're, what you said was funny. They're laughing at you, not with you. And you just feel like you want to crawl in a hole. You feel ashamed. And maybe, maybe there is a, a, an appropriate time for public shame. Like, uh, there's this story of a guy, his name is Edmund Abib. And Edmund, he was a mean guy. And for 15 years, he verbally uh, made fun of and, and, and uh, abused uh, a, a, young, a young girl who was, uh, had a handicap and her mom. It, they, they actually reported it to the police. The police, uh, the prosecutor took it on, took him to court. The judge sentenced him to several months in prison, a, a significant fine, and then he had to sit by a busy street in, in California with this sign, I am a bully and I pick on children with disabilities. He, he had to experience public shame. And honestly, I'm not at all unhappy that he had to do that. But can you imagine being the one in that experience where you have to expose yourself to other people for who you really are? And they get to see, because we're not always beautiful people, are we? And it's not fun. It's not fun to have to tell people about our ugly side. 
you see that disheveledness, the, well, it, I can't be in public because my face isn't made up, or my hair isn't done, or my clothes are dirty, whatever, you know, when we, when we experience that shame for being exposed when we don't feel comfortable, then, then we lose something. We lose confidence. And you know that person that's able to just, I don't know, do something perfectly. They can, they're really good in sports, and it's just like super smooth. You know, they do their basketball thing, they do the layup, and the ball goes in every time. And then there's people like me, and we try to do that, and, and uh, you know, we trip over ourselves, and the ball doesn't go in, and we fall on our face. And it's, it's, you don't want to be in public, right? Because you feel like you don't have confidence to be in people's presence. But that person that just seems so perfect at that thing, their hair is always done, their clothes are always nice, they always have the right thing to say. Um, they have what we like. They have what we want. They have confidence. So we've been studying First John, and in First John chapter one, we learned uh, we, we saw this contrast, and, and John is doing these contrasts all throughout the book. He's got these contrasts going. We'll find some today as well. But the first contrast he made was between light and darkness, and he connected light with with truth and and, and with uh, righteousness. And he connected darkness with sin. And he says, God is perfectly light. There's no darkness in him. But then he points to us and he says um, that we all have sin. And if we say that we don't have sin, then we are a liar. Which makes us, well, a sinner, right? Because lying is a sin. So there's no way that you can get around it. You're a sinner. How can a sinner dwell in the presence of God? And, and he doesn't just give us a problem. He gives us a solution as well. He says the solution is, remember what it is in 1 John 1 9? Confess your sins. Yeah, we got to expose ourselves for who we really are. You know, that, that guy on the street saying, I'm a bully. We got to do that to God. We have to say, God, I made, I made a mistake. I have a problem. I need your help. And what's the promise? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. And He said that confidently. <laughs> faithful and just to forgive us and to. There's, Cleanse. That's an important word, and it's going to come back today. When we, when we read the word about purify your heart, I want you to think about 1 John 1.9 and Jesus' promise to cleanse. So then we looked at, at um, 1, John chapter, or, yeah, 1 John chapter 2, and we found another comparison, and he connected um, light with love and, and darkness with hate. And uh, that theme is going to come back again today. Um, but really important thing that he brought up in chapter 1 is kind of highlighted again in chapter 2. In the first, first chapter, he says that the, so that the whole point of um, the, the stuff that he's telling the church is so that they can have fellowship with God and fellowship with the other believers. So in chapter 2, he, he says something similar. He talks about knowing God, and he talks about abiding with God. Now, does fellowship sound a little bit like abiding? They're kind of similar ideas. I would say that, uh, that if you're married to somebody and you live in the same house, that you would have fellowship with them, right? Or um, if you go to school with somebody and uh, you sit in the same classroom with them, you have fellowship. And in the same way, you're kind of abiding, you're doing life with that person. And so John invites us to have fellowship with God. And to do that, we need first John 1 9. Confess, he'll forgive, and cleanse, right? Um, and, and we, even though we have sin and darkness, can live in the presence of 
to work in his life. In chapter 2, he says this idea about abiding, and he kind of doubles down on the problem. You see, we cannot hate our brother and say that we know God, and knowing God is super important in chapter 2. We can't say that we know God if we hate our brother. And, uh, and so he, he presents us with a problem, because you and I have an issue with self-love. And you can't love yourself without excluding somebody else. Selfishness is opposed to love. So we all have a problem, don't we? And what's his solution? Right there in the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I write, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. But if you do sin, and that's, remember we, we studied this idea that, that that phrase, if you do sin, is, a, is an expectation that you will sin. Not that you have to, we do have a choice, but that when you sin is kind of what we say. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, and he makes this word, and points out this word, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, God is light. There is no darkness in him. Jesus is righteous. There is no sin in him. What's the solution? How do we, how do we dwell and abide with the God of love when we are not loving like him? And the solution is we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So confess, don't forget the plans. Now, he keeps on going in 1 John chapter 2 with a, a new concept. Um, and he, he's going to introduce this idea of confidence. And I, I want you to connect confidence with relationship. Because it's, it's when we are ashamed that we don't want to be in a relationship. We want to run and hide. We want to be by ourselves. We want to, we want to push whoever it is that we feel ashamed to be in their presence away. Or, or as uh, someone that I uh, really care about says, you want to crawl in a hole. <laughs> you just want to be by yourself. But confidence is the opposite. Confidence says, I want to be in your presence. I want to hang out with you. I'm excited to be with you. And when, when John says that his goal is fellowship and abiding, then we need confidence in order to do that. Okay. So in 1 John chapter 2, he, uh, he says this phrase that transitions from the previous things that we were talking about to this new idea of confidence. Um, but, but he says it, and it, it seems a little bit out of context, but it's not. And here's what he says. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And we're going to be in 1 John 2 and then 3 for the whole time, so you can turn there in your Bible if you want to explore this, um, or you can read on the, on the screen. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, John, this is, uh, this is John reminding them of the statement Jesus made in Matthew 24 about Antichrist. And we've just been doing this Discovery Revelation series, and, and we found in Revelation that John talks about being Antichrist. Now, if you know the history, you know that John writes Revelation as basically the last book in the Bible. And, and so if Revelation is the last book, that's where John gets his apocalyptic visions about the end. What he's writing about here in 1 John Maybe he doesn't have all of that context yet. What he knows is that Jesus promised an Antichrist to come. And you know what he says? He says, Antichrists are here. And so therefore, it's the last hour. I think that we can forgive John his eagerness for Jesus to come. Because it's not, it's not but, uh, what, 2,000 years or so since he wrote this. And, uh, and Jesus hasn't come yet. And so it seems a little bit confusing why he says it's the last hour. But we'll just say he was eager. 
for Jesus to come. And that the timing of the second coming is not his point at all. He's not going into some apocalyptic vision. He's still talking about fellowship with God. And he's introduced this idea about knowing God, knowing Jesus, in the first part of chapter 2. So now, he's telling you about people that claim to be Christ, but really are not. And it's important, super important, that we know the difference, that we know what is true versus what is false. Otherwise, we're going to end up caught up in this mess. And, and then after he describes uh, a bit of the Antichrist scenario, he says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. You see his point? It's abiding, it's being with, and, and knowing God is really important to abiding with him. There's a, a, an aspect of this Antichrist thing that's definitely ends time, and you know we want to wonder about all the different symbols and stuff. But what, what John is trying to get us to, point to, to conclude is that we want to spend time with the right Christ. We want to spend time with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior. And in verse 20, 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have, and there's the word, confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you remember in Discovering Revelation, if you're part of that at all, we, we brought this up over and over and over again. At the end of time, when Jesus comes, at the second coming, there's going to be only two groups of people. Those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and those who follow the beast, or follow the inclinations of their heart, or follow man-made religion, or follow anything but Jesus. Only two groups of people. And, and he says, my little children, and this is the title of our first John sermon series, little children, he's talking to you and me. And he says, I want you to be confident in Jesus comes. I want to be, I want you to be the one who stands there when Jesus is coming and, he, and saying, with your arms held up, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. That's John's desire for you and me. What do you think? Would you like to have confidence when Jesus comes? It's not fun to be ashamed, is it? Especially when the important events is the transfiguration moment. Because I'm either standing confidently with Jesus, or I'm running for the hills and crying for the rocks to fall on me and hide me from the face of Jesus. I'd rather be confident in that moment. And, and John adds this in verse 29, If you know then that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that he's righteous, knowing is a big part of being with Christ, of having fellowship with God. And so this is where John, um, he puts one of, I think, the most tender passages that you can find in the Bible. And it's 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See, or if you're looking at the New King James, or King James, it says, Behold, look at what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so we are. Have you thought about those words? God has called us his children, and so we are. Because he has said it, we are his children. Just let it sink in. 
I'm not hearing the amens and praise the Lord's yet, so I'm thinking you might not have caught this. God has called us his children, and so we are. Do you see what, what John is saying? There's a confidence built into this verse. God has called us his children, and so we are. He's invited us to abide with him, and so we can. He's asked us to be in his fellowship, and, and so that's the place that we should be. There's no reason we need to be ashamed here. But remember, there's this problem, because he just said that if you know he's righteous, then you should be righteous too. And how many of you feel like that? You're just righteous. Come on. Somebody's righteous in this room. Nobody? There, there's something about us that's more like Edward, um, Edmund Aviv standing there beside the road, or sitting there beside the road with his, with his I'm a, a bully sign. There's something about us where we know we're not righteous. And even if you think you're righteous, you got a problem there. Self-righteousness is, is pretty ugly to everybody, especially to God. All of us have a reason to be ashamed. And yet, John keeps prodding us. He's like, no, we've got a, we've got a solution. Confess, he'll forgive, and, and, and cleanse. And we've got a solution. He's our advocate. Jesus Christ, and what does it say? What does it describe as? Jesus Christ, the, the righteous. And, and so when it says, if you know he's righteous, you should be righteous too, he, he doesn't leave it there. He says, God has called us his children, and so we are. There's a lot of pressure for kids to perform. Maybe, maybe kids in this room don't have this pressure. When, when you look at that kid that's, you know, kicking that ball and bouncing it and doing all this stuff back behind his, his head and the ball's just doing it. It's like he's defying gravity, like this kid is in control of gravity and the ball goes exactly where he wants it to go. And then you get that, that, that ball and you start kicking it and, and it comes over there and it, it doesn't ever do anything you ask it to do. And, and we kind of look at the, the comparison, us versus them, and, and we say, I'm not really that good. Let me ask you, did God create you just like the person next to you? Just take a look. Did God create you just like that person? No, your brain is different. Your desires and interests are different. Your talents are different. And so maybe one guy can kick that ball and do all kinds of amazing things with it, and you can't. But that's not a big deal. Because one of two things is at work. Either God's not designed you that way, or he's got a lot more experience than you at doing that thing. And John, in chapter 2, reminded us that growth is part of the Christian experience. He talked to children, and he talked to young men, and he talked to adults, right? He talks to these, these groups of people and points to the growth process in the Christian experience. Yeah, you might have just started playing with that soccer ball. Don't expect to be as far along as the guy who's perfected the art. Because you just started. There's growing that that can happen. But if you are surrendered, you know, the confess your sin part, if you are surrendered to God, then he's got you exactly where he wants you. You're perfect right where God has you. And, and keep in mind, life is not about comparison. Once Paul says, uh, comparing yourselves among yourselves, you are, do you know how to finish that one? Not wise. It's not, it's not a good idea. It's not wise to compare yourself with other people because it doesn't really matter, does it? 
Does it matter if somebody else knows something you doesn't you don't? Does it matter if somebody else seems to have everything figured out? It doesn't. Your only comparison is with Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. And, and so when we look to him, when we abide in him, when we have fellowship with him, um, there's a promise. And it's it's gonna happen. Now, oh, I need to, to tell you a verse. It's um it's Mark chapter 4, verse 28. Jesus says this very similar concept to what first John is talking about. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But first of all, this is important to note. Jesus says the earth is producing this. It's a natural process, a natural growth process. And that's what the Christian experience is too. It's something that God designed, and it's a natural growth process. And so first the ear, that the, 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 the blade, that's just a little piece of grass. Then in the ear, that means, you know, like the fruit's just beginning to develop. And then the full grain in the ear, meaning it's completely um, matured. We're all at different stages in our maturing process in Christianity. And I don't care if you're 60 or 6, um, you can't look at somebody else and say, well, that person's, that person's completely mature, <laughs> right? Or that person's really immature. Comparing ourselves and trying to figure that out is worthless. It's not... And there's no point in it all. The only comparison we need is a comparison with Jesus. And, and so John makes this clear in his next verse. He says, Beloved, this is 1 John 3, verse 2, we are God's children now. When? Right now we're God's children. And what will we be, or what we will be, has not yet appeared. That's an interesting phrase. We are right now God's children, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the promise. The promise God has made is that he's growing us. Right now, we are his children. Right now, we can have confidence to be in his presence. But we're maturing. We're growing in him. And when he comes, we will be like him. We will be just as he is, because we will see him face to face. And then he, he adds this point, and everyone who thus hopes in him, hopes in the second coming, hopes in being like him, right? Purifies himself as he is pure. What does that mean? We'll look back in verse 1. It says that we should confess our sins, and he will do what? Forgive us, and that's, that's the important word. You see, John is, is a Jew, and he comes from a Jewish culture. And, and what do the Jews do? They have these purification ceremonies. And the purification ceremonies are meant to cleanse you. And it's a spiritual thing, but it's a physical thing they do. It's a, kind of a baptism of sorts, washing of hands or washing of feet or washing of the head. Sometimes there's oil involved, right? There's all these different ceremonies that they would do. But every one of them is to illustrate what John is inviting us to do, which is to purify our hearts. And how do we purify our hearts? We expose ourselves to God. No pretense, no hiding, no trying to make us ourselves look good, but just in our real self, say, God, this is who I am, and I need your help. And you know what he promises to do? To forgive us and to cleanse us. So when John says, he who hopes, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure, this is what he's talking about. Coming to Jesus and giving ourselves to him. And, and uh, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus kind of doubles down on this and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we're not talking about, like, you know, moral purity in the, like, 
sexual sense or whatever. What we're talking about is a heart issue. Now, I've got the option to come to God and to be like, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I look at what I've done, look at who I am, look at all, all of the merits that I have. But does that really do anything for God? I mean, is God impressed? No. God loves me in spite of myself, but he's not impressed by my um, self-promotion. I, I can't bring pride to God and God say, you're all good. My pride is, is, is worthless. It's a sin in and of itself. What I need to bring to God is my brokenness. I need to say to God, I need your help. And, and so when we confess our sin, when we, when we expose ourselves to God, that's where cleansing can happen. That's where he can transform us. He can give us a spirit, and, and things can start to change. And John says in verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's a really important phrase. If you abide in Christ, you won't keep on sinning. Now, some of you are like, but I, I, I've sinned recently. Does that mean I don't abide in Christ? Well, Paul answered, or John answers that question. Um, if you keep reading verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So you've got two different children that he's talking about in 1 John. There's the children of God. And he says, my little children, he has called you your children, and so you are. But then there's the second option. You could be the children of the devil. And Jesus, he talks to the Pharisees this way. Remember that time when, when he said, but you are of your father, the devil. That was pretty bold. And John, in this letter, he points the finger at us. And he says, we have that choice too. Are we going to be the children of God? Or are we going to be the children of the devil? And if you keep on sinning, you're the children of the devil. And you might, you might look at that and say, this is, this is pretty discouraging, Jason, because I've got sin in my life. How is it that I can be a child of God and still have sin? He says, if you don't love your brother, you can't know God. And if you are uh, unrighteous, if you sin, then you're a child of the devil. And I feel like I must be in the category of the child of the devil. Let's let's look at what exactly he says. In verse 8 and 9, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. God's purpose is to destroy sin in our lives. And that's why Jesus came. He came to, well, let's see, um, I think the words were forgive and cleanse, right? He came to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a, and here's the word that you need to underscore in your Bible, practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. You see, there's, there's two options with our lives. Option one is we hold on to sin, hold on to the thing that's dear to us, hold on to the thing that the Bible has encouraged us to give up, that Jesus has invited us to confess and leave behind. We can hold on to it and keep on making a practice of sinning. Or we can let go, and we can say, God, it's yours. I keep, I keep stumbling into this. In fact, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, if you, if you want to put a reference in your Bible for this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about the sin that uh, so easily besets us. And it's like there, there's <coughs> sin in our lives that we're, we're walking down the path, 
of God, the, the narrow way, you might say, and our natural inclinations, the temptations from others or from Satan or whatever, um, puts something in our path, and we stumble over it, and we fall into sin. Not because we make a practice of it, but because it's a natural tendency for our hearts. And when we when we stumble, we, we like uh, the psalmist who says, the righteous man falls seven times, perfectly, completely, absolutely falls, but rises again. See, the, the point is, what do you do with this? Do you hold on to it? Do you walk in that path of sin? Or do you, after stumbling into it, turn to God and say, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. See, if we are the latter, then we, we remain the children of God. There's no conflict here. Jesus is the righteous one, and he attributes his righteousness to us. He forgives us, cleanses us, and we can stand, even though we have sinned, in the presence of the sinless God. And we can have fellowship with and abide with God. That's the promise. And so what John is inviting us to do is not to cling to sin, but to give it up, and to confess it, and to allow him to cleanse us. Jesus, or, and, and John keeps on going in the next few verses talking about this sin idea. And I like how he, he does it, because you know how some of us, we have these uh, perceptions of what sin is, right? Sin is eating too much sugar, um, right? Sin is, I mean, well, I mean, fill in the blank. You've got your own perception of what is sin in your life. But, but John wants us to understand what God sees as sin. The things that are, are a problem for God. And so he talks about Cain, and he talks about hatred, and he says that, that we cannot be righteous and hate our brother. Because if we hate our brother, then, um, then we have, uh, oh, what's, uh, I don't have it written down, but the idea is that we are um, in death. Like hating your brother is like embracing death. And, and righteousness is passing from death into life. Uh, and he connects the idea of love with life and of hatred with death. So we have these comparisons and contrasts. We've got light and darkness. We've got love and hate. We've got life and death. We've got righteousness and sinfulness. All of these comparisons that he's making. And, and what we know is that uh, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. And he promises to produce fruit in us. He promises that the Holy Spirit will start to work out a change in us. And, and among other things, the fruit of the Spirit includes love. Now here's John's argument. If we are abiding in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in us, and, and the fruit of that includes love, but we cling to something like hatred. And just like Cain, if given time and opportunity, we would act out that hatred in something that is every bit as close to death as the murder that came to me. So, if we cling to that sin, we cannot be Christ's. We cannot hold on to that sin and allow the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts at the same time. The only way to be transformed, the only way to abide with Christ is to let go of the sin. And you know what Cain did? Cain clung to the sin. And when God asked him, where's your brother? Cain was defiant when, when God addressed his problem, he didn't change. His heart stayed rebellious against God. And so God sent him away. Cain no longer had fellowship with his brothers and sisters, with his family. 
and Cain no longer had fellowship with God. Not that, not that that couldn't be the case sometime in the future, it could change, but we don't have any indication that he or his family changed their hearts. And so it's, it's about that moment where I have sin in my heart, what do I do with it? Do I hold on to it, like the hatred for somebody, the, the chip on my shoulder that I have, the grudge that I'm holding against that person is coming wrong? Um, if I hold on to that, John says, I cannot hold on to Christ too. I have made a choice. Am I going to hold on to that sin, or am I going to confess it? Let it go. In 1 John 3, 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's, God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this, it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. When we, when we don't allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, we cannot be God's children. That's a sobering thought. It should be a sobering thought. It should call us to something the Bible calls repentance. And what does repentance look like? Well, it's First uh, John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we have verse 14. We know that we have passed from death, out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And to qualify what he means by love, John says that we will know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. That, that's an easy verse to remember because John 3.16 talks about the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And 1 John 3.16 talks about the God who gave his life for you and me. And then in verse 18, he said, he brings the little children's subject back. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He says that if we see a brother who has a need and we don't help him, that we're not loving him. That there is an active aspect of loving our brother. God wants to work out not just a theology of truth in us. He wants our lives to be transformed so that we begin to love like he loved and to do things like he does John chapter 3, towards the end, um, tells us, this is uh, verses 19 to 24, he tells us that we can have confidence that we're saved. Not just confidence that we're saved, but confidence that we can be in the presence of God. Because isn't that the whole point? I mean, the whole point is to have Christ abiding in me, and then ultimately I get to live with him in heaven, right? The whole point is abiding. Everything's about fellowship with God. And, and so he, he says this, in verse 19, he says, whenever our heart condemns us. How many of you feel like that lady with the frazzled hair sometimes? Your heart condemns you. You feel ashamed. Maybe, maybe you're like that Aviv guy sitting by the road with the sign, exposed and feeling ashamed. He says, whenever your heart condemns you. Now that means that's a message for me and you. And what does he say after that? says, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. The promise is always there. He keeps, even though he's calling us to repentance, he keeps pointing us to the promise, the hope. God is greater than your heart. And then he says um, in verse 19, this idea about reassuring our hearts. And in verse 20 and 21, he has this contrast statement between um, condemnation and confidence. We're either condemned 
because of our sin, because we're holding on to it, we make a practice of it, or we have confidence because we've given it up, we've surrendered it, and we can have confidence because of Christ's righteousness. And so because of God, because we've confessed, because we've been forgiven and cleansed, because of Jesus, because the righteous one is the Lord of our lives, because he's our advocate, and, and he's the one that's in charge, he gives us his spirit, because of all of these things, we can have confidence before God. We can be purified. We are called righteous, not because we have anything to attribute to our righteousness, but because we have surrendered ourselves to the one who is righteous, and he has covered us with his robes of righteousness. We can abide with Christ because of Jesus, and our hearts will no longer condemn us because of Jesus. That's where our confidence comes from. That's where the Christian's confidence in salvation is. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And John wraps up chapter 3 with this promise in 1 John chapter 3, 22. And I think Ginger must have been claiming this promise when she prayed with that man uh, about the, uh, the problem that they were facing earlier. And he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And what, what are God's commandments? Just throw one out. Maybe the, the greatest command. <laughs> that was a leading question, wasn't it? Jesus, when he was asked, what is what's the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with mind, and with all your strength. And, and then he added, and the second is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think maybe, just maybe, one of Jesus' favorite disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, as the book of John tells us, the Gospel of John, just maybe he was listening when Jesus said that. Because the very next verse, John says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, the son, of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us. Now these, these two laws, Jesus says, sum up all the law of the prophets, which means that everything that God uh, says about himself, everything that he requires of us, is included in these two commands. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, is included in this command. It's the big picture that he wants us to pay attention to. We want fellowship with God, we want fellowship with other people, then this is what he points us to. And the only solution, because you and I, I guarantee, have broken this command. Maybe in the last hour, certainly in the last few days, we have broken this command. And the only way that we can be in the presence of God, have fellowship with him, is if we confess and let him forgive and cleanse us. If we cling to the advocate, the righteous judge, then we have hope. We can have confidence. There's a man named Alexander Sutler. He was quite concerned because the ship he was on was leaking. And it was not a good situation. He was worried that the ship might, might sink. And, uh, and so when they got to the uh, Juan Fernandez archipelago, um, they, they stopped to get some fresh water. And so uh, Alexander Selkirk asked the captain, well, he was a bit of an unruly young man, and uh, so you just can imagine what, how he might have said this. But he, he said to the captain um, that we should fix this ship, we should stop and, and, and fix all the leaks before we go on. And some exchange probably happened, and so he said, 
I would rather be abandoned on this island than continue on this ship. And so, in the 1760s, the captain said, fine. Rowed him to shore with a pistol, a hatchet, a knife, and some a sleeping, some, a sleeping mask. And he said, here you go. Alexander immediately regretted the statement that he made. But the captain wouldn't have anything of this repentance and left him there. Abandoned him on an uninhabited island all by himself. Well, the, uh, the ship went on and uh, it later foundered off the coast of Colombia, what is now Colombia, sunk. Several of them died. Those that didn't die were captured by the Spanish and imprisoned in Peru for several years. But Alexander's fate was probably not any better, because for the next four years and four months, he had to figure out how to survive on his own. Um, there's that, uh, there's a more modern version of this story. <laughs> um, uh, Daniel Defoe is a, after, after Selkirk comes back to England, uh, he ends up uh, writing a book kind of based on his life, and, and uh, Selkirk becomes somewhat of a hero. There's even a, a statue made of him um, standing there with his gun waiting for waiting to be rescued. And uh, in the book that uh, Daniel Defoe wrote, you might know of as Robinson Crusoe, roughly based on Selkirk's experience. But then there's this modern author, a guy named William Boyle, who wrote a screenplay. And, uh, and his screenplay became known as the 2001 movie Castaway. And in order for him to get into the role and figure out what this was like, he, uh, he marooned himself on an island just to see what it would be like for a few months. And, um, he, he said that uh, it, it's not the physical survival that was the hardest to figure out, but it's the emotional and social challenges of being completely by yourself and isolated. And it's, it's actually um, William Boyle that, that made friends with the software of the, um, what are they called? Volleyball, thank you. He's the one that made friends with the volleyball. It ended up making it a movie, and uh, you, you've heard the, the Wilson story, I'm sure. God designed us to go through life with relationships. And we, we, we really just have the two options. We can either be in relationship with ourself, self-love, selfishness, self-focused pride, and, and end up cutting other relationships off, breaking ties with other people. Or, and, and when we do that, I should say, when we do that, we're almost like, it's almost like we've removed ourselves on an island. But nobody is supposed to be on an island by themselves. That's not the way God designed us. And, and so he invites us to do something completely different. He designs us or invites us to be in relationship, to be in fellowship, and to abide with each other and with him. And, and the solution that God has given is to break down those barriers of selfishness, of pride, of self-seeking. Confess them. Expose ourselves to God. Confess them to God. And he will cleanse and forgive and give us his spirit. And he will cause us to walk in his way. So write his law in our hearts. So make us like him. And grow us into be, well, as John puts it, when he comes, we will be like him. I'd like to invite uh, Ginger 
to come and, and sing a special song. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. unlimited riches. And he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Which means you and I can approach him with confidence. And we can say, God, I did it again. Not because I'm trying to hold on to it, but I keep stumbling. Please forgive me. And he says, I will. I will forgive and I will cleanse you. And we can stand before his throne with confidence. We can hope with confidence that when he comes, you will be there saying, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. Would you stand with me as we sing a closing? 